0: Everybody, Welcome to The Legendarium Podcast. It's a weekender. I feel like I haven't done one of these in a little while. I I was down and out. Um, And so it's been a little while since I did one of these kind of uh, non-specific book topics. And so I'm really excited to get into this one. And the topic for today is great art may have an age floor, but it has no age ceiling. Now, this is something I've talked about on previous episodes. You may be... uh, sick of me talking about this i doubt it because i've only ever mentioned it but i'm really going to dig into this one today and i'm excited to do that with an author who has graced us with her presence so maram taiba welcome
1: hi craig how are you
0: very good thank you very much so maram is the author of weather Knows and the road to elephants uh, among some short stories that have also been published right
1: um, weather knows is my recent book. It's a children's steampunk. Um, i the road to elephants. I wrote uh, a few years back and it's uh, dark fantasy or psychological fantasy, something like that. I can't quite decide on the genre for that one, <laughs> <laughs> but yes, weather knows is my recent book and it's definitely children's steampunk.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, uh, that is a really interesting, um, subgenre. I you know subgenres only have so much utility as, as far as I'm concerned but I love the idea of children's steampunk that sounds fantastic. So I also know from your bio that you are a filmmaker and that you've shown a couple of short films at the Cannes Film Festival. Uh, anything you care to say about those?
1: Oh, yes, sure. Um, my last film I made in 2017 and it was a short film that I wanted I had wanted to make for quite a while. But I, I didn't have the guts to make it when I was back in film school. <laughs> um, so I waited a bit and I'm glad I did because it was a challenging film, not just in the sense of like the production uh, value and the challenges of production, but also it was deeply emotional for me and I didn't, I didn't see that coming. Um, it was inspired by the character in the film was inspired by my older brother who has, who is a special needs kid. And I kind of addressed his situation in the film and uh, explored what, what it what would it be like if he were alone for a day in New York City without, because he's very like, dependent on us. So what would it be like if he was left alone, all alone in New York City? Um, that was the film. Um, it was, it's called Don't Go Too Far. And, you know, it's like when you tell little kids, don't go too far, because you want to keep an eye on them. Um, But he definitely goes too far. This film was uh, screened at the Cannes Short Film Corner during the Cannes Film Festival in 2017. Yeah, so that was my last um, work. I am focusing a lot more on writing right now. So I do um, screenwriting and a lot of fiction writing, because that's the love of my life.
0: Yeah. Well, that's great. And I mean, that's what we're all about here, obviously, is uh, is books. And so I would encourage people to go check out uh, WeatherNose uh, at the very least. But uh, we're going to link to your website where people can check out all of those projects that we've mentioned. So um, hit the show notes. There are links there. And I'll mention that again at the end of the show uh, as well. And maybe we'll talk a little bit more about WeatherNose because I, I do want to kind of Uh, i I want to hear what a children's steampunk uh book actually what that (laughs) means so i'll ask you again later but for now let's talk about the subject at hand which is the idea of an age ceiling um, or or an age floor and so Uh as i mentioned up top the idea here the this this kind of pet theory that i've been uh, mulling about with for the last few months is that great art has an age floor or probably has an age floor, but it does not have an age ceiling. And so what I mean by that is when we talk about an age floor, take a book like um, Moby Dick. You're not going to give Moby Dick to your six-year-old and say, here, have fun. You're going to love it. It's it's not, they're not going to be able to process it. It's, it's literally not age appropriate. And sometimes it's, you know, in the case of Moby Dick, it's about Like, look, you're not going to understand the words on the page. Other times it might be about content um, or, you know, or or other contextual things. Uh, But there so there may be an age floor there. But if something really is great art, there isn't going to be an age ceiling. And so an example of this that I often think of would be something like Harry Potter or um, or one of my favorite examples would be uh, the giving tree if you go back and read the giving tree which is this amazing children's book and it's all of you know two three hundred words it's very short uh, but it's extremely poignant and parents and grandparents who are reading it to little kids can get you know just as much or more out of it than the little kids do because of what it has to offer you know Mm -hmm. so anyway let me just kick it over to you now maram and and say What's your take on that before we get into kind of the specifics and some questions that listeners have sent in?
1: You know, but the first question that comes up for me, um, just listening to you is, are you talking about children versus adults when they are receivers of the art or consumers of the art, or are you talking about them as creators of the art? Um, And I don't know. I feel like the conversation would be different. Uh, for either do you know what i mean
0: yeah no that's a great question definitely when i say it i'm thinking of consuming consuming the art uh that's a really interesting wrinkle to throw in there what does it mean when you're creating art
1: yeah like moby dick if you're giving it to a child to read you could still give that give it to them as the abridged version they're not going to be able to process or tolerate even uh, the author's complicated prose as it is, but if you were able to abridge it or or give them a, a, you know, children's version of that, um, I don't see why a child would not enjoy the story and extract, um, some kind of meaning or some kind of wisdom that even we as adults might not see. Right. Um, I read, um, A Tale of Two Cities, when I was in sixth grade, I read the abridged version. I never read the original Charles Dickens version. Um, And I found that it blew me away. Um, And even as a child, I was able to process that. The whole message of that story was that injustice breeds injustice. And I was able to see that even as as, as a sixth grader. Uh, I later read the Charles Dickens the, the original text, which was beautiful, by the way, um, but I just I don't see why um, a child wouldn't be expected to extract the message from the art, or or see the meaning in the art, or create the meaning for themselves if we were to help them through it. Um, it just it just really depends on the form. It depends on um, if it's simplified enough, or if it's if it's if it's uh, presented to them in a way that caters to them you know what i mean um right i don't know in Uh, this case
0: we're we're taking the original piece of art and we are changing it to lower that age floor right uh so that they can participate in some way in in the art itself but but it's not the original it's not um the artwork as presented originally so um but yeah that's a that's an interesting point you bring up
1: Right. On the other hand, uh, I don't think you need to change the form for adults. So I think that's what that's what you're getting at, right? Like I, I still enjoy Maurice Sendak's "Where the Wild Things Are." I am crazy about that book. Not just the story, but also the illustrations and the kind of mood that the book sets, the message that it sends, the the like naughtiness of it. I love it. I love it. Yeah, and I, I, it's one of the books in my collection, and I still look at it every now and
0: then. Yeah, and this kind of—that's interesting. You say that because it gets into one of the things that I get tired of hearing, and I hear this all the time, and maybe you do as well. As an author of uh, of the fantastical, um, but I hear every once in a while, "Oh, that stuff's just for kids. Yeah, you know, grow up and read a mm-hmm. read a grown up story. That fantasy is just for kids." And I really hate that. Obviously, <laughs> I'm a 34 year old man who continues to operate a podcast uh, about fantasy and science fiction literature. So, obviously, I hate that. But uh, it's it's awfully condescending and it's awfully narrow minded in my view. And it's it just tells me that somebody isn't willing to put forth the effort, maybe, to get something out of a, a work of art. Now, that being said, I I'm not sure I. The, the way that I originally put this is that great art has an age floor, but no age ceiling. And so it could be that something really is really is just for kids it really is only worthy of being consumed by kids. If that, you know, and so it gets a little bit sticky and I'm not sure how to navigate this. Uh, are there things that are better left behind when you're 12? Um, and, you know, and if that's the case, do they call qualify as great art? Well, all
1: those Barney songs, maybe.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You know, I I miss those. uh, Somehow they they escaped me.
1: (laughs) Yes. Um, Yes, definitely. There are things that you, you you know, you would leave behind and you wouldn't enjoy as an adult. Um, Tom and Jerry cartoons are timeless, I think.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Clearly, clearly.
1: Uh, No, but but in in all seriousness, I do think that great art does, can still touch us, even if it, if it was created by children, it, for children, it can still touch adults, if you are willing to be in touch with your inner child. And I feel like that's the key here. Um, a lot of people um, are not willing to go to that place anymore, even though it still lives within them. Um, and that's another, that's a whole other conversation, which is like reconnecting with your inner child. No,
0: I think, I think that's a conversation we should have for sure that's a great conversation that we should have right now is what does that mean to connect with your inner child? What does that mean to you?
1: Well, I've been preaching for the past few months. I've been preaching about reconnecting with my inner 11 year old, because I feel like that is the age that is the culmination of childhood where you've, you've collected all of the wisdom that you can collect as a child but you're still maintaining the imagination the innocence the willingness to believe in things um and that combination kind of it's it's a superpower i would say um and 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 at the age of 11 was when i realized what it was that i wanted to do which is Writing, writing novels and fiction, um, and I've returned to that recently, and it feels so fulfilling. It feels like a like a circle that is, you know, closing, um, and it feels like you are feeding a thirsty part of you that's been thirsty for so long, and that's what happens when a lot of people go like, "Oh, it's an animated film. I don't want to watch it because it's for kids," <laughs> like right. like you said. And, and, and this is not a judgment. Like, If you don't enjoy animated films, you don't have to watch animated films. But maybe this is a, a chance for people to kind of stop and think, well, why don't I want to watch animated films? Is it because I really don't enjoy them? Or is it because I have this belief that I need to leave that part of me behind?
0: Yeah, it's, uh, there's an oft-spoken-of uh, difference between something or someone being childish and being childlike and maybe that's kind of what we're getting at here there are things that are childish and you know you probably don't hang out with your barbies as much <laughs> in your 20s and 30s and 40s as you do uh you know when you're a small child but this idea of being childlike uh what does it mean to be childlike a child is uh, is humble and teachable and you know they soak things up like a sponge and they're they're willing they're it's much more difficult to embarrass a child because we, you know, we haven't socialized them into embarrassment. And that's a valuable skill if you're an adult to try to reacquire, to to understand that it does. I I actually hate the idea that when people say it doesn't matter what other people think. It does. It does matter what other people think up to a point. And you can train yourself hmm. to not worry so much about. Uh, about embarrassment and you know so when I think about being childlike that's the kind of the that's the mindset I put myself in in fact here's a, a tangent for you this is a one of those legendary tangents that we love um languages people talk about uh, adults can't learn languages like kids can and this has always been a little bit of a, a a bugbear for me because and this sorry to let you know that's what I studied in in uh, university was linguistics but so I learned a little bit about this and there may be something to the idea of brain chemistry, but I think ultimately what it comes down to is adults aren't willing to put in the time or the embarrassment to learn a language. And, you know, kids are, mm-hmm. are willing to do that. They're willing to make the mistakes and learn and grow and all that. And I think there's something there as well. When we talk about stories, consuming stories and learning how to either read or watch them and make the mistakes and misunderstand things and have to go to somebody for help in acquiring that uh, that experience and that knowledge.
1: Yeah, and for some reason in, in human societies, there has been this belief that has been upheld for too long that adults don't make mistakes, that adults cannot allow themselves to be put in an embarrassing situation. Whereas with children, we give them that room because we don't expect that of them, right? We don't expect them to not make mistakes. We don't expect them not to blunder. Whereas with when, as soon as we step into the threshold of adulthood, there's immediately that kind of like this, you pass through a force field that, you know, is, is, you know, it's like, it's like judgment, like don't make a mistake. You can't make, you can't be caught making a mistake. And I wonder why that is. It, it sucks doesn't make sense
0: yeah it does and and i think that it's look i uh we're not going to solve all the mysteries of uh you know the social universe here but there's something maybe something here about uh this when i said being childlike is being humble and being teachable it's also kids are easy and quick to forgive um it, it it's easy for them to forgive others for their mistakes. And that's something that we as adults need to work on. It's not just um, <clears throat> not just allowing ourselves to make mistakes, but allowing others to make mistakes. And that's uh, something I think we see a lot in 21st century society is a, a real unwillingness to let other people make mistakes and learn and grow and, and do differently the next time we just expect everybody else to be perfect the way that we expect ourselves to be perfect.
1: mm mm-hmm. yeah.
0: Yep. Anyway, so this all, I think this all feeds into this question of, uh, you know, why art shouldn't have an age ceiling. So an, another book that I think of, and I've brought this up on on a previous show before, but um, one of my favorite books from when I was a teenager is Ender's Game. And so anybody who reads science fiction mm-hmm. has read Ender's Game and it's a classic and all this stuff. But you're usually handed this book when you're 13, 14, mm-hmm. 15 years old. Um, and then you move on with your life. But I have gone back to it every few years since. We've done it here on the show with Dave Farland. And every time I go back to it, I am shocked and amazed at how different the story feels because of my uh, mm-hmm. that stage of life that I'm in. Um, and it's and I, I don't think I would be able to do that unless I had at least enough um, childlike humility to go back and say oh no I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get back in touch with my uh, my inner child and read this book that I read as a kid or whatever book it might be.
1: Yeah and, and I, I would go back to the point that you made about it being great art that doesn't have the ceiling yeah. right so for me I, I didn't read Ender's Game I, for me the books I've actually recently been doing live readings of the first Narnia book on Instagram on, on my Instagram um, and, and I've been I've been called back to the Narnia world for some reason recently. When I was going through this reconnecting with my childhood thing, um, and, and and what makes me think that what you're saying applies to the Narnia books, for example, is that the author um, C.S. Lewis, you know, he was a religious man, sort of. Um, I don't know much about him, but that's that's something that I know about him. Um, and he was able to package certain profound teachings or thoughts or ideologies in this book in such a fun, simplified way that preserves the kind of the wisdom that he wanted to transfer to, to the children who are reading the book, um, but in a way that speaks to them, right? Mm. And I think that's why the book was able to survive and still be loved by adults, because, because it has a great bedding of wisdom in it, um, so it's not just like a fun story that you that is you know soon soon to be forget forgotten. Um, it it has a bedding of wisdom that is that withstands time. Um, and actually, um, I've recently been working on a on my debut fantasy book. Uh, it's still like there's still a working title. It's it's not out there in the world. But going back to the Narnia books actually taught me a lot of humility when it comes to addressing the child and talking to the child using the le- simple language that doesn't... Because when you're a writer, you find yourself very often falling for the trap of like trying to complicate things or trying to sound grandiose. But then you got to remember that you're talking to a child and, and things are much simpler for children. You don't need to Put on those layers of, you know, unnecessary nonsense. Um, C.S. Lewis does this beautifully. He's just—he's very candid, very frank, very honest, and I love that about his books.
0: I totally agree with you. I, I, I—it's bringing up a question in my mind, which is, um, if you were writing a book and you knew that your target audience was adults, in my mind, that's not necessarily a bad thing it's you can target a book to adults and use words and uh and situations and themes and materials that you wouldn't use for children um it's just that's just a very different type of writing (laughs) and if you do it right then that person who is able to read it in their 20s can read it again in their 60s or their 70s or whatever um anyway yeah let me um go to a couple of listener comments that we got. I, I posted that we were going to be doing this episode and um, Ashaman on our uh, Discord server mentions Calvin and Hobbes as the perfect example of this. I think that's perfect. Uh, Maram, did you ever read Calvin and Hobbes or have you?
1: Occasionally. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: it is, Ashaman is correct. This is the perfect example of kind of what I'm talking about. If you if you read, so. Calvin and Hobbes or whatever you know you, you, you substitute whatever uh, your favorite children's piece is
1: for me it would be Tintin
0: oh yeah or Tan-tan. Tan-tan uh, the French yeah sure yeah, we- I know that one so whether it's Tanta or if it's uh, Calvin and Hobbes it has these layers and so as a kid you're in you're getting to understand how humor works and um Calvin trying to play Calvin ball and breaking the rules and how that doesn't work, you know? So you're learning these little lessons that kids can comprehend. And then as you read it as an adult, right. you start to uh, sympathize with the parents or, you know, Calvin is making some grand statement about society that went way over your head as a nine-year-old and suddenly it all makes sense and it's all genius. And yeah, it's a great example. So Asherman, well yep. done. That's a great example of this. Uh, OK, Lady Sweden, I'm still trying to work out where she's from, says, how much? Oh, and I love this question. Excellent question. How much does marketing ruin books finding uh, from finding all of its potential audience or does marketing help? I love this question. Do you want to take the first crack at it?
1: Well, I, I think it's simple. Like if it's, if it's good marketing that has actually read the book. Um...
0: <laughs> <laughs> I take it this is a frustration you have run into in the past.
1: Not, well, I have worked with people who who tried to pass off their services without having actually read the work. And that is frustrating, whether it's marketing or something else. Um, but I'm assuming that good marketing needs to really be immersed in the work and needs to really get it. Um, and it's up to the publisher or the author, if they're self-published, to, to kind of, you know, discern who would be the perfect fit for your book. Because yeah, yeah marketing can, can
0: ruin it. That's a good point. It's um, a lot does depend on how effective the people marketing a a work are. And I would also say that there's probably a a misunderstanding from our end as consumers about what marketing is. And we kind of put this stink on the word because we associate it with advertising and we think advertising is bad. When in reality, marketing is just about, it's literally that word is very apt because it's, Finding a market for a particular thing, um, and you know, none of us would hear about anything if it weren't for marketing of some kind. And so, Absolutely. I think it's yeah. I think it helps us find good works to to consume, and it helps those find us as well. And I would say that marketing is only really limiting if we let it limit us. And so. You know, you don't have to be a cynic and say, oh, I hate marketing, but you can still be savvy about it and recognize it and then just don't let it steer you in the direction that it thinks you should go. So if, uh, uh, right. if a marketing company or if a marketing department at, uh, you know, whatever publisher says, oh, this is a fantasy book, so we're going to send it to Barnes and Noble or whoever and have them put it on their sci-fi fantasy shelves, that's a that's a marketing decision. And so that can help you right. find the book and help the book find you. But then you don't have to stop there and say, well, that's you know, that's all it is, it's a, it's a YA fantasy book. Well, yeah, that might be how it's marketed. Mm-hmm. Congratulations, it helped it find an audience, but it can be more than that.
1: What, what did you mean by more than that?
0: Well, what I mean is um, it, just kind of what we we're talking about. It's uh, if it's a, a YA fantasy novel, that doesn't mean that it only has to be for the YAs out there. It can it can be Absolutely. more than that. So one of our favorite authors on this podcast is uh, Brandon Sanderson, who often gets um, lumped into the YA shelves with the Mistborn trilogy. But if you read the Mistborn trilogy, yeah, sure, it's good for the YA audience, but it's good for a lot more than just that. Anyway, that's the only point I was trying to make. Yeah,
1: no, I agree with you because, um, see... My book Weather Knows, for example, is is uh, categorized as a children's steampunk book. But can adults read it? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I, I would, I would be bummed out if adults didn't read it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it is important to to categorize it as a children's book because it just kind of puts you in. Even as an adult, it will put you in a mindset that is ready to receive a fun quirky lighthearted childlike story right um, whereas if i categorized it as an adults fantasy book it would be a disappointment and it would feel like it was it, it was there's something wrong with it and that's that's been for me um, marketing my own book i had to go through this process of deciding whether i wanted to categorize it as a children's book or categorize it as an older the YA as in just a normal fantasy book that's not for any age in specific um but I went for I went for children and I feel good about that because it does speak for the content and it does reflect the mood of the book yeah even though I want adults to read it
0: no and I think um there's nothing wrong with an adult picking that up and and saying you know what I I could kind of go for uh, a simpler story that's told in a more straightforward fashion, you know, than maybe something really uh, heady and complex. Um, and so, as long as if, if that designation of children's steampunk helps somebody put themselves in the right mindset as they get started reading the story, then it's done its job. That's uh, that's a good bit of marketing right there. So, um, speaking of which, <laughs> yeah. I think we should probably move on and, and actually talk a little bit about weather knows because like i said i'm I'm really interested in what what children's steampunk means um and so i will say if anybody has uh comments or questions that they have um about this topic that we've been talking about art having an age floor but no age ceiling hit us up, go to Reddit, go to Discord, let's talk on Twitter and Facebook and all the other places. So I, I do wanna hear from you. Um, and at this point, okay, I gotta ask you, Maram, is children's steampunk a designation that any other book has? Because I've never heard of this before. This is amazing.
1: I don't think it's, it's quite as common as like your regular fantasy and sci-fi. Um, and I've, I've seen steampunk under fantasy. I've seen it under sci-fi as a subgenre. I don't think it is as common, though. Well,
0: right, but I'm, um, I'm talking specifically of children's steampunk. I, I don't know that yeah. I've ever heard that designation.
1: The only example that I could think of, like, right now, off the top of my head, is the Philip Pullman books. *His mm. um, Dark Materials. I don't know if it is categorized as children's or YA, but it is definitely for, you know, younger people. Um, and it, it it is, it does pass, I think it would pass as a steampunk book. Although, I, again, I don't know what Amazon has ca- categorized it as, um, but it does have so many elements of steampunk. Um, but yeah, I don't think that steampunk as a genre is, for, for children is quite as popular as it is for adults. Yeah.
0: So give me an elevator pitch then. What is this book about and uh, what, what makes it steampunk and what makes it for kids?
1: Okay. Well, um, here's the story. So the story is about, the, the story is set in a universe called the Cerulean Universe and it is a universe of my creation. It's a steampunk universe. Um, the story is about a an old-fashioned weatherman who wakes up one day to find that his career is being sabotaged because a ten-year-old girl has invented a machine that can predict the weather. So he sets out in order to get his life back on track. He sets out to destroy her and her machine, but he finds out that she is way too smart, and also she has no sense of humor. <laughs> um, so, this, so this story has you know it's 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 for you if you if you're into like steampunk. Um, machines and gadgets, if you, if you like hot air balloons, if you like um, quirky, funny humor, uh, it's that kind of story. Um, and the, the, the most fun thing in this book is the, the power dynamic between these two characters, a 42-year-old man and a 10-year-old girl um, and their power struggle. Um, and I just, I, I had a blast writing this book. Um and I've, I've heard good things from people who have read it that, that this is precisely what makes it great is this power dynamic between a 42-year-old man and a 10-year-old girl. Um, what makes it steampunk? So to be quite honest, I wrote it back in college when I was doing my undergrad. So that was like, what, 10 years ago or maybe more. Um,
0: you don't have to admit to anything here.
1: No, I don't. <laughs> You're right, I don't. Um, but to be honest, back then I had no idea what steampunk was. I didn't know. I knew what it was like in my head. I knew that there was this kind of world that feels like it's like sort of kind of Victorian, but it has like machinery and technology and like clockwork. I had that image in my head and I was so drawn to it. I didn't know it had a name. I didn't know it was a thing. Um, So when I wrote, wrote Weather Knows, I... I didn't know that it was a specific thing, like I didn't know it was a genre. I just had this vision of a world that looked like that. And and even like in the Cerulean universe is not quite as Victorian in my head. It doesn't look, doesn't really look English, actually the, the terrain um, in that universe is more a little more tro- tropical slash Mediterranean, but still steampunk. So it's kind of a mishmash of things. Um, but then later when I was doing my, um, when I was in grad school, I found out that it has a name. It's called steampunk. It was one of my professors, uh, who actually told me and I got so excited because it's, it felt like, oh, wow. I had instinctively known this without knowing that it has a name. (laughs) Um, so yeah, that, that's what makes, um, whether knows steampunk is the, this aspect of like invention and machinery and but it's it's it still has that kind of old-fashioned feel it's like an integration of of two two aesthetics in one
0: yeah it sounds uh it sounds really interesting and it sounds like um if I or somebody else listening wanted to pick up something like I said, maybe a, a little bit uh, simpler, aimed toward a younger audience. It would be a very refreshing read compared to some of the uh, door stoppers that we t- that we tend to do here um, on the Legendary. But yeah. uh, but it would also be great for. Would you say reading with your kids? Um, like what what age group are we looking at here?
1: Um, we're looking at 8 to 12. Oh, so, okay. um, Yeah, they need to be able to, to process like prose, like long sure. prose in order to read it. Um, and well, I had a thought in my head and I lost it. <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna say that the thing about the Cerulean universe is when I was writing it, I was in a state of mind where I wasn't really taking myself too seriously and I was just having sheer, I was doing it for the sheer fun of it. So I I do hope that this kind of comes through in the writing, in the world building, that this is a world that's just fun and doesn't take itself too
0: seriously. I have no doubt that it would. um, And I intend to read it myself. It sounds like it'll be a pretty quick read probably. um, And so it sounds like something I could (laughs) knock out pretty quick. Uh, Sounds like fun. Uh, It's one of my, I I have a certain filmmaker. uh, I won't mention who it is because it doesn't matter. But when I watch one of their movies, I can tell so easily that the director and all the actors and everybody on set and everybody doing the editing and the the effects and everything, everybody was having an amazing time and that bleeds through really easily. So, yeah, Mm -hmm. I I have no doubt that if you had a good time writing the book, then that came through. So
1: Um, I would actually if I were to choose somebody to make. Weathernose into a film it would be wes anderson ah. because that is precisely the kind of attitude that i would want to see on screen if i were to see Weathernose on screen
0: that's actually that might be the most concise way that you've uh, that you've told me what kind of book this is that's perfect <laughs> there you go lead with that yeah. uh, this is a wes anderson book written by me <laughs> Perfect. All right, Maram. uh, Maram, sorry. Uh, Thank you so much. And I, like I said earlier, I'm going to link to all this stuff below. So if you want the Amazon link, or if you want to go to Maram's uh, website, uh, that'll all be in the show notes and all at our website. You can go to thelegendariampodcast.com and check all that out. And uh, we will see you all for the next episode. I have no idea what that's going to be. So it'll be a fun surprise for all of us. I'll see you then.